The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in September 2006. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio in the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we say hi to Simon, Simon Callow. Hi, Simon. Hello there. We kind of jumped the gun on the I opening did, there. I did, excited. <laughs> give me another 10 or 15 seconds just to give a little bit of a brief bio of yourself, and then... It's open mic after All right. Okay. Simon Callow, uh, you were born in England. Uh, been in a slew of movies, making your film debut in Amadeus in 1984, Room with a View in Maurice, the very popular Four Weddings and a Funeral, Shakespeare in Love, Notting Hill. On Broadway, you appeared in the one-man show The Mystery of Charles Dickens, and you directed Pauline Collins in the one-woman production of Shirley Valentine. You also directed the London production of The Pajama Game and Carmen Jones, and created the role of Mozart in the original London production of Amadeus. Now that we've got all the official out of the way, right. hi. Hello. <laughs> you have a brand-new book out now on Orson Welles, which is really a follow-up to your first volume on Orson Welles. Why a fascination with Orson Welles, and why writing more than a 1,000 pages on the man's life you're not even done yet? <laughs> you only you've only got him up to age 32, yeah. I believe. Uh, that is correct. <laughs> Well, uh, basically, the, the reason that I wanted to write a, about Wells, apart from a general fascination that I think we all share with this extraordinary phenomenon who somehow seemed to lose his way, you know, uh, was uh, the theatre work that he did in the 1930s. I, I'd, I'd read about it when I was at drama, drama school. I, I read about the, the Mercury Theatre Productions and the Federal Theatre Productions, and it seemed to me that there was a certain excitement about that work, uh, a kind of audacity, a recklessness, an imagination which made the theatre anew, which really uh, really qualifies it to be described as a golden age of the theatre. And I think it's a good idea to write about golden ages because they encourage us all. So I set out and I trawled through all the archives and then I started to speak to people who had known Wells and they almost all said to me, if you're doing all this work, why don't you just write a biography and not simply about the theatre? Because they said we've never quite believed the Orson Welles that we've read about in the various biographies. It, doesn't, it isn't the Orson Welles we knew. And the, these we were the people who had actually worked with him. And that seems to me axiomatic, that you, if you're writing about somebody who's a, a, an artist, you write about his or her art. And, and, and uh, Welles's art was a collaborative art, wherever it was, whether it was theatre, radio, or film, it was always a collaborative. All these things are human pyramids, basically. And I wanted to, I wanted to, to examine the process by which he created, how he did that personally, what was in his mind, what was at work in creating all of that remarkable um, uh, oeuvre of his. But Wells himself was sort of famous for inventing Orson Welles, yeah. the figure. So how do you? get to the reality of this man. Very easily. Really? <laughs> yes, because he, he was a terrible liar. That's what's wonderful <laughs> about it. Is he, the, some people who reinvent themselves or re reinvent their life stories go to great lengths to erase the facts. But Wells sold the Mercury Theatre archive to the University of Bloomington in Indiana uh, in which everything that actually happened can be readily seen by anybody who wishes. So uh, things that, you know, Wells claimed for himself, which which are not true, uh, uh, are easily disproved, or indeed dates and stories and whatever that he tells. But I, don't, I wasn't ever really very much in, interested in the game of finding Wells out. All I wanted to do was to find out what actually happened. Because here is obviously someone who is a unique phenomenon. 
Not simply an extraordinary film director, but an extraordinary human being who lived an inconceivable life, really. It, it, it's so extraordinary, his life from beginning to end, that I wanted to do justice to what had actually happened. And uh, it led me all over the place. I went to the extraordinary places, to the place where he had his childhood summers, the but to the to the 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 place in outside Chicago in Highland Park where he attended operas and reviewed them at the age of seven in the local newspaper. I, I went to find out actually on the spot, and uh, you know I I think there's an awful lot of uh, I suppose this is true of biography in general, but especially as I come from the theatre and from film, an amazing amount of writing about theatre and film is just so ill-informed about what actually happens in these spheres? Well, if you say the name Orson Welles to most people, two productions come to mind. Citizen Kane, which has been called the greatest film of all time, and The War of the Worlds, one of the Mercury Radio Theater broadcasts that got notoriety because people started panicking, thinking that Martians were really invading New Jersey. Um, the first book that you wrote, The Road to Xanadu, really covers up through that period, through Citizen Kane. Yep. And the second book now, called Hello, Americans Picks Up where that left, left off, and basically the Hollywood years and yeah. this exile in, in Europe and all that. Yeah. Um, you've written more than a 1,000 pages. The second book is maybe an eighth of an inch thinner than the first book. <laughs> you must have spent a lot of time in Indiana researching the archives and all I that. Did. You go into minute detail, even talking about in one passage, the cameraman carrying a handheld Mitchell camera with a 31-inch lens. <laughs> where do you find all these details? Well, they're all there, really, to be found, in, but, but most of it in Bloomington, and then in other archives that I've had access to, particularly the RKO archives. They were very instructive indeed. Um, people have written extensively about Wells. People have written university theses and things like that. It's all available. It's just a question of diligence and work, and I suppose, in the end, it's also up to me to justify the reader's interest in that kind of detail. Um, uh, and obviously there are details that, that are beyond most people's interest, and I, I've, I've had inevitably to leave stuff out, but what I've always tried to do is to see, to see what it was, what it actually, what was going on to account for what had happened. And uh, that's, um, you know, uh, uh, just a, a general, I mean, it's a problem with biography, because of course, if, if you have enough material, in the end, you could find yourself writing down every detail of every minute of your subject's life, because, of course, it becomes very fascinating to you. Anything you can tell me about Wells is intriguing to me. So it must be kind of a tough decision as to what not to include, yeah. what to cut out. Exactly. But uh, my, my general principle, to repeat, uh, is that I always wanted you, the reader, to be apprised of the the basic information. I, I, I don't want to confine it to a footnote. Uh, I, 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 I don't want just to know it for myself. I want you to know it. So, for example, and maybe some people have thought that this is a bit excessive, if Orson Welles made a film of The Magnificent Ambersons, I, I, I'm afraid I can't assume that most readers know what The Magnificent Ambersons is like. Although it's a, a, an American classic, I should think now it's a fairly unread American classic. Well, it's a very interesting book altogether. But unless you sort of know what it was that Wells was looking at when he started to make his screenplay for The Magnificent Ambersons, you can't know what his mental processes were. So I try to put the reader, uh, to put into the reader's hand as much as he or she needs to know to be able to judge what Wells managed to do, you know? Do you think differently of Wells, having gotten to know him over the now more than a decade that you've been working on this project? 
Well, yes, um, uh, although it, it would be hard to put it in a nutshell. It's exactly like living with someone, you know, for a long time. You get to know them really, really, really well. You can second-guess them. You begin to know what's behind everything. But I, I don't know that one, uh, you know, that I could say to you, uh, but the only thing that I can say to you very clearly is that I, uh, over the years, have begun to have great compassion for a man who, in my view, was some, to some extent the prisoner of his own personality. You know, I think we all are to some extent. Uh, but but he he was he was a man of huge gifts, which were were often frustrated by his own um, impulses, his own temperamental impulses. And as an actor, director, and writer, do you? Do you empathize specifically with him? Do you see parallels to your own career? Basically, Orson Welles and I have two things in common, asthma and flat feet, <laughs> nothing else. <laughs> I, I don't think there's anything remotely alike in us temperamentally or artistically or any other way. Yet in the midst of this project, you chose to take on the role of Falstaff on stage in Chimes at Midnight, his compilation of the Falstaff material from three yes. Shakespeare plays. Was that putting yourself in his shoes, at least for a moment? I suppose it, it was, to some extent, that must have been in the back of my mind. The other point was that I'd always wanted to play Falstaff. And, and you wanted to do it all at once. <laughs> exactly. A, a very bad choice, as it happens, because it's much better to do it the way Shakespeare wrote it. Uh, and I think Wells found that out, too. Well, well, Wells did Times at Midnight on stage, uh, first in Belfast and then in Dublin. It was a, a, a really big flop. Uh, but that, but it was his work on that that, that 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 of course four years later came to such glorious fruition in the movie. Now this current book, which is titled Orson Welles Volume Two, Hello Americans, and then Road to Xanadu. This book you've worked about ten years on Road to Xanadu. You worked several years on that, I'm sure. Yes, I did. You put a lot of your own life into researching Orson Welles. He yep. passed away about twenty-one years ago. Yes. Let's say you were sitting in my chair, and Orson Welles somehow could be sitting in your chair today. What question would you ask Orson Welles? What would you want to know from the man himself? Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, the sort of things that I'd ask him, because I, I, I don't mean to be uh, sort of uh, immodest about this, but I think one, I've been able to find out pretty well everything that I need to know about him. Except you never met him, did you? I never met him. No. So what would you want to know from him, the man, as opposed to what you've read in Indiana or elsewhere? I... I, 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 I mean, I would ask him questions like, "Why were you so nasty to George Schaefer?" <laughs> but well, no. But I mean, it's a serious question because George Schaefer was his was his pr protector, and he just didn't help him in any way. And George Schaefer was running Wells. the movie he was studio. Ru ru running RKO, right. exactly. He was the man who got Wells to Hollywood in the first place. He was the man who gave him the greatest contract any director's ever had. He was the man who fought almost over his own dead body for Citizen Kane to make sure that it was released and not burnt, which is what the, many of the other studio bosses would like to have happened to it. And he was the man who did everything he could to protect Wells uh, uh, on the making of The Magnificent Amazons, and Wells was completely indifferent to him. He didn't, didn't respond to his, to his uh, demands for him, for Wells to return, and he never, ever, in any interview that I've ever read, and I think I've read an awful lot of them, ever mentions George Schaefer. It's as if he didn't exist at all. I suppose he was just another defective father, as far as Wells was concerned, because he'd had plenty of those. And, and uh, yes, I mean, I would like to have asked him about his relationship with his guardian, Dada Bernstein, which I think was complex and rather dark, um, and I, I, I would like to ask him about that, certainly. I don't know, you know. I, I think well, I'm very glad I didn't meet Wells, actually, because he was a great seducer. 
And 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 I think you know people like Peter Bogdanovich and Henry Jaglum, who got to know him well at the end of his life, uh, and fell in love with him. Of course, you would naturally you would. How could you not fall in love with such a such a great raconteur and indeed such a sort of wreck of a of a noble spirit there? Um, but it, it mustn't stop you from asking the questions, do you know? And I might have been stopped from asking the questions. When we talk to actors, sometimes we hear actors say that they're role is to be an interpreter, not a creator. And we think of writers as as the creators, whether for theater, whether for books. You who have such an extensive and glorious career as an actor, what compelled you to be a writer? Because certainly whether these books, the books about your own career, what what was that impulse? Uh, you, you have it the wrong way around. I, I wanted to be a writer first. And uh, indeed, I wrote all the way through my childhood. And then I gave up in disgust because I realized I didn't have anything to say. <laughs> it was rather <laughs> depressing. I looked back at all this stuff I'd written about. It was, of course, about me. It was incredibly boring. So uh, I then started to think differently about a possible career. And, you know, by chance, I happened to go to work at the box office of the Old Vic. Well, not entirely by chance. You wrote a letter, as well, you yes. recount in, in, well, in your I mean first book. By, by lucky chance, uh, when I wrote a letter to Laurence Olivier, he answered it. And he <laughs> said, come and work here if you'd like to. But Laurence Olivier didn't say, come and act. Laurence not Olivier put you into the box Absolutely, office. Absolutely. But that's, uh, I, I then learned, as, as you uh, uniquely do learn from the box office, some of the realities of life in the theatre. And, and one of the things, of course, one of the side effects of it was that I met lots of actors, and the young actors at the National Theatre at the Old Vic in those days were people like uh, Anthony Hopkins and Michael Gambon and Derek Jacobi and Jane Lapater and so on. And so I actually got an idea in my head that uh, uh, actors were sort of people, too, instead of these mysterious figures up there. Because I'd never figured out how you got to be an actor. I, I thought, you know, it was like being the Pope. Uh, somebody had to do it, but how did you get the job, you know? So so, so I, I, I then thought, well, maybe I might have a bit of acting in me. I'd never done any acting at all. And then, I, then, I, then I went to, 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 to university, having not wanted to go to university. I went to university only to learn how to act, but immediately discovered that I had no idea. I was the worst actor in the world, and that if ever I was to learn how to act, it would have to be in a proper acting school. So I went to the toughest acting school in England, which is called the Drama Centre, and I found how to act there. I found that I did have acting in me. Um, and But meanwhile, I'd become completely fascinated by the process of acting and the experience of actors and the world of acting and the world of the theatre. It was, you know, my, that, that was the metaphor through which I then understood the world, and then I had a subject. So then I started writing. Well, apparently you were a better writer than you thought because you wrote to Laurence Olivier and you got a response. <laughs> and been, you yes. got a job out of it. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> so how long from working the box office of the old Vic, how long was it before you then first got your first acting part on stage? I went to the Vic in uh, 1967. Uh -huh. I went to university in 1968. I came out of university in 1969 and then went to work for a year in the box office of the Aldwych Theatre, or six months in the box office of the Aldwych Theatre, which is where the Royal Shakespeare Company was at the time of Peter Brook doing A Midsummer Night's Dream and so on, Judy Dench in Twelfth Night and so on. Um, and uh, I worked also at a theatre called the Mermaid Theatre, which was uh, a little sort of repertory theatre in Blackfriars, run by a magnificent eccentric figure from the 
you know, as if from the dawn of time, theatrically. Uh, a man called Bernard Miles, who walked around the place with a parrot on his shoulder. <laughs> and uh, so uh, so I was getting lots, I was still getting more and more experience in the theatre. I went to Drama Centre in 1970, and I had my first job a week before I was due to end my training uh, at the Edinburgh Festival in September, no, in, in July of um, 1973. Most graduates would be envious having a job before you graduated. Yes, yes, it, it wasn't bad. But also it was just only a week before, which is great. Because uh, I, I needed every, every, every moment of that training that I could possibly get. What, what was that first job, the first role? <laughs> the very first role. I played um, the uh, front end of a horse. <laughs> but Better than the back end. It's certainly better than the back end. And it also uh, was uh, in rather noble cir- circumstances because the play was Wojciech by Büchner. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a pantomime, you understand. <laughs> and that was at the Edinburgh Festival. And uh, I did a play called The, Th- the Three Estates there, which is um, a, a, a Scottish play written in Lallans. Um, and... Um, uh, from there I went into repertory and then I went back to Scotland. A lot of my early career was in Scotland. And then one of the plays I did at the Traverse Theatre was a big success, went transferred to London. And then a famous English actor who was one of the goons. I don't know who, if anybody knows what the goons are. But from the goon show, crazy Peter Sellers and Spike Milligan. And, and you Harry Seacombe was Harry the Seacombe. one. Uh, Neddy Seagoon, uh, as he was. <laughs> There's few people who know what I'm talking about. And, uh, and Harry did a show in the West. And so by 1975, which was two years after I'd left drama school, I had literally my name in lights in the West End. And it happens to be the tallest and the biggest marquee in the West End, the Prince of Wales Theatre. And so there were quite big lights. So that was very Well, that first, first role is the front end of the horse. Did you get that because of your acting ability or because you're tall? What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not tall. And, uh, and uh, uh, it was only one of many roles, I may say. <laughs> okay. But you didn't take a straight line right into the West End, yet it, by the same token, you weren't doing, as I think some of us romantically think all great English actors just start with the RSC or something like that. You were working in collaborative theater companies. That was like, later. That was later. Yes. No, I had a very erratic career because I, I started at the Edinburgh Festival, then I went into Rep, but then I went into the Traverse Theater, which is a sort of as it were, Scotland's off-Broadway, a very high-level fringe theatre, very internationally acclaimed fringe theatre. Then I went into the West End, then I went into the fringe, and then I went into a political collective theatre. And after that, I went into a theatre in the West End, into the East End of London, um, in a converted synagogue called the Half Moon, where I played Arturo Ui. I did work at the Royal Court Theatre. I played Titus Andronicus at the Bristol Old Vic. I never did rep again as such. Um, And then completely out of the blue, um, just at a point when I thought I should probably start looking for alternative employment, an English director called John Dexter, a very famous and powerful man, uh, phoned me up and told me that I was going to play Mozart in Amadeus. Just told you it wasn't a case of... He'd never seen me acting. He didn't ask me to read. He just had an instinct that I was the person to do it. In the end, John Dexter didn't direct Amadeus. Peter Hall did, but I still played Mozart. Okay, but if he hadn't seen you act, he really... Somebody had told him about me. Just word of mouth? Is that what it was? Yeah. And I I once met him. Just met him Uh for breakfast. Certainly, in terms of international reputation, it seemed that Amadeus was what really landed you on the map in, in some ways. What was the experience of that play at that time, working with the great Paul Schofield as well? You know, It was a sort of a dream, really, because uh, uh, the combination of, of, of Peter's play, Peter Shaver's play, which is so brilliantly theatrically effective, uh, uh, playing Mozart, 
of all extraordinary human beings, being filled with his music in my mind and in my soul all the time, and uh, um, uh, and then working with Paul Schofield, who remains for me a kind of an idol. He's, I suppose, the greatest living English actor. He's 84 now. Um, I don't know whether he'll act on stage again. Probably not. But, uh, uh, you, you, you know, when you're talking about really, truly great, great actors, you're talking about forces of nature and 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 it was extraordinary to share a stage with him and 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 to to work so happily with him we had a wonderful time working together we still see each other and write to each other and uh, uh, um but but i'd never experienced to stand on stage with somebody who has the kind of impact on an audience that paul does it's like a kind of a sort of barely contained mass hysteria when he walks on stage it's a very sexy thing big sexual relationship between Paul and his audience. And uh, at first I was a bit confused about this. I didn't understand how, where, who was I in all of this. And I tried to sort of pull him back to me, but he wasn't having any of that. And then I realized he didn't mind if I had a relationship like that with the audience. So we had this kind of menage a trois between me and Paul <laughs> and the audience. It was phenomenal. But I, uh, I mean, I've acted with a, a number of extraordinary actors, Maggie Smith and, and Judy Dench and so on. Uh, but I must say, in terms of acting on stage, uh, Paul was titanic, uh, extraordinary, and um, and I, I I just do kind of fear terribly that that, as they say, his like will never come again. I I, I don't know where it's going to come from. That sort of power. Then you made your movie debut in Amadeus. In Amadeus, playing, of course, uh, not playing um, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, but playing uh, um, uh, Emmanuel Schikaneder, the, the, the librettist of The Magic Flute, a wonderful and fascinating man. But it was a very strange experience to walk onto the set in the Barandov Studios in Prague and see Tom Hulse, who facially is not unlike me, wearing my wig and my costume. And I was, like, suddenly coming across a doppelganger. It was very... Odd, indeed. And Certainly, after having originated the role in the West End, they have to then take a different role. Which yeah, been it was strange. It was odd. It was odd. Very, yeah. very mm. weird. And I believe it was in this same period that you developed this very, very close friendship with a figure who's well-known to those who follow the English stage, but not so well-known over here, Peggy Ramsey. Oh, uh, yes. Um, can you tell people about Peggy and, and about the unique friendship that yes. you had? Yes, yes. Well, Peggy was, Peggy was uh, the most famous English play agent of the 20th century. She was responsible for the careers of Joe Orton and, uh, to some extent, Pinter, because she drew the t- critics' attention to Pinter, though she didn't represent him, and Alan Akeborn and David Hare and Christopher Hampton and Willie Russell, and, you know, the, the absolute roll call of great writers that she represents goes on forever. And uh, I happened to meet her in 1980 when I was 30 and she was 70, and... Uh, we experienced a fantastic uh, instant connection with each other, which I suppose, well, I know, on her part was sexual. It wasn't sexual on, on my part, uh, but, 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 uh, but it was very intense. It was very emotional and intellectually highly, highly charged. We kind of were, it was like fire and, and, and air together. We just burnt the atmosphere up when we were together and we saw as much of each other as we could at all times and it was not without its difficulties I at the time was uh, living with and very much in love with a a young man and uh, Peggy was uh, um, uh, very jealous of that and and, uh, we had an extraordinary uh, 
well, times of terrible rows and huge reconciliations. And uh, but it 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 it, it was a, a relationship of immense um, giving, really, on both sides, and uh, Im- amazingly nourishing. And uh, well, you know, I miss her deeply to this day. And your book, being an actor, mm. is dedicated to her. Yes, he says without. Whom yes. this book would never have been written, and the reason for that is that she. What what happened was that uh, um, uh, I had uh, at some point uh, uh, somebody had asked me that this happens quite a lot, uh, you know, uh, at, at a university in London called Goldsmiths College, part of London University. Somebody had said to me, "Will you come and talk to the students?" And I said yes. And and what that normally means is you you go and say, "Well, you know." What's it like working with Paul Schofield and uh, um, how do you remember all the lines and so on? <laughs> and uh, I decided instead in my, my megalomania that I would uh, make a major statement about acting. So I wrote, I, for hours and days I was writing this speech and I, I went to, to the college and I started to deliver it. And uh, by, by the time I'd got about a tenth of the way through what I had to say, it was time to stop. And so I said to Peggy, who had actually was there... She actually was there in the auditorium, though I didn't know it. I said, uh, well, look, there's a lot more. Why don't you read it? And she read it, and she said, I'm going to send it to a publisher. She sent it to uh, Nick Hearn and uh, the theatre publisher, and he said, well, either you can write a whole book or or you could edit a whole lot of essays about the same length as this. And I said, no, thank you, I'll write the whole book. And I did. I wrote it in three weeks, this book called Being an Actor, which is uh, was an, uh, my attempt to describe what it is like to be an actor. People are very interested in actors. I mean, people who aren't actors, even people who don't particularly go to the theatre, are very interested in actors as phenomena and uh, and worried about the phenomenon as well, the whole stealing of souls and the, the, the uncanniness of impersonation and their ability to transform and all the rest of it. And uh, I just wanted to write about it, so I wrote uh, a sort of cycle in the life of an actor uh, but I also wrote the story of my own career so far. I'd only been acting for six years, for goodness sake. But I thought it was a good idea for a young actor to write about his career while it was still in the making. Yet you have, from that time, the book came, the first book first came out in 1984. Yes. You've revisited the book twice. <laughs> yes. So, so you you feel the compulsive need to to update your own thoughts on acting. Uh, well, it's not, uh, to be honest, it's not so much my thoughts on acting, which haven't changed all that very much, but, but just the, the section which describes my career. Uh, it just seemed sensible to, to bring it up to date. So as in that book, uh, uh, being an actor, you have an account of everything I've ever done on stage. And in another book called Shooting the Actor, which is about a, a rather scary experience I had making a film in Yugoslavia, I've added everything that I've done in movies, so that there's a book about movie acting, there's a book about uh, stage acting. Yet, at the end of the first the first version of the book, you yeah. wrote what you called a manifesto, yes. which uh, was viewed by your own account, by many as being really an anti-director statement. Subsequent to that, you became a director. Almost immediately wrote, afterwards, and, actually. And so, what is the perspective? Can you tell people a little bit about what, what your first statements were, and then how that may have been tempered by your own experience? Yes, my view was this. I thought that, and it was certainly true, in the, in the m- early and mid-80s in England, directors were essentially all-powerful. Directors uh, ran theatres, they cast the actors, they hired the designers, they were the whole source of everything in the production. And I noted that this 
power, this, this, this extraordinary power, which I described as directocracy, meant that their, their underlings, that is to say the actors, were losing their initiative as actors. Because if you go to a rehearsal room and the director's going to say to you, this is the way the show is going to be, you're going to do it this and this way and this way and this way, then you just keep yourself as a blank sheet. But actors shouldn't do that. Actors are the source of a great deal of what is fascinating about the play and the, uh, the, 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 the evening in the theatre. And the, 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 the writer hopes that the actor will bring an enormous amount of him or herself, his insight, his understanding of life, as well as his abilities as an actor to the part. And a lot of what is exciting in the theatre is what happens between the character and the actor, the sort of crackling energy which goes on between those two uh, phenomena, and I felt that directors were stopping that from happening, and the theatre was accordingly getting a much safer and more rigid and controlled and cerebral kind of a place. Um, and uh, so, in other words, my book essentially was not so much uh, a, a book to denounce directors, but a rallying call to actors telling them to take back the reins of their own work and not to allow themselves to be trampled on and put down. But, of course, many people took it, rather, as an attack on directors. And, indeed, many people <laughs> said to me, I must never write this book because I'd never work again. Um, but, uh, uh, meanwhile, I had, of course, been thinking for years about directing plays. And it so happened that somebody immediately said to me, will you direct a play almost the moment the book came out? And, of course, I, I was only too delighted to do so uh, on the grounds, of course, that I wouldn't be that kind of a director. I would be the enlightened kind of director. Because I never doubt that we need directors. I mean, there's, I mean it is possible. I should think if you had about ten years on your hands to do a show without a director, but having a director just saves time, you know. Um, I, I, I remember, I've just read recently a, r a remark of the British Prime Minister Clement Attlee, which said that, um, uh, that d d democracy is all about discussion, but it only works if you can get people to shut up. And the same <laughs> is very much true about the, the theatre. Um, but uh, uh, um, obviously, I, you know, I've directed many plays. I've directed, I think, uh, Twenty-eight productions now. Some of them are on a very grand scale, and it has always been my task, my 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 my, my hope, and my, my 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 purpose to draw as much out of the actors as I possibly can. That's what we want. That's the material. That's the the raw material is coming from the actors via the the the, the writer. You know. So with hindsight, hopefully being 2020, with as, as much objectivity as you can muster, do you think you've been that enlightened director? I hope so. Um, I, it's but, but what would your, your actors say? Would they agree that you've been enlightened as opposed to you just hoping so? <laughs> so far they haven't told me that I'm not. Uh, uh, um, uh, and some of them have told me that I am, which is very nice, and they do tend to like working with me and liking with, working with me more than once. Um, I, did, I do remember... Though, when I directed a film for the first time, the only time, in fact, directing Vanessa Redgrave and, and, and d d doing a scene and saying, cut, and then immediately talking to the cameraman and talking to the props people and, and, and various other people that were involved in making the scene and saying nothing at all to the actors. And I just thought, hold on, hold on. I mean, this is this is this is absolutely atrocious. This is the sort of thing that I detest when I when I'm acting. You know, you, you just have to, uh, uh, you know, for all that the props and the light and the camera are absolutely crucial ingredients. It's the actors are actually giving 
of themselves, and you just have to do, hold them. It's a bit like making love. You know, you can't just roll over and go to sleep. You've just got to, there's a little <laughs> aftercare needed, you know. Good analogy. So drawing together <laughs> your, your interest in Orson Welles and your own uh, directing, you make the point that Wells really was a collaborative director. He looked for input from the cameraman, yes. from everybody involved in the production. It wasn't yes. just the way he said it. Do you consider yourself to be of that same school? I hope so. I hope so. I mean, uh, um, there are actors and actors. Some actors aren't so keen on, on, on putting out, you know, and they have to be drawn out. And sometimes there are actors who deeply want to be told what to do. And, you know, to my surprise... Not that she wanted to be told what to do precisely, but Maggie Smith turned out to be an actor who really, really welcomed direction. And it took me weeks of rehearsal before I quite had the courage to do that. I didn't. I assumed that she's such a genius in herself that she would would just want to be getting on with it. But on the contrary, she was desperate for input. And so, of course, I, I gave her that input. And how has directing impacted you as an actor? I just think I'm very relieved when I'm not having to direct because uh, I, I can just get on with my own work. I, I don't. I think I. I think I uh, may have um, come to the conclusion that it helps the director a great deal if one knows the lines and is really attentive. I mean, you you know, actors do ter- terribly forget about things like concentration in the rehearsal room and so on. Suddenly actors start talking to each other or reading the newspaper while somebody's rehearsing a death scene. And, and, and you, I, I try not to do any of those things. I, I do try to respect the, the, you know, as an actor now, I've learned that, that it, that it is peculiarly disruptive for a director if people are just, you know, if, if, they, if they bring no real energy into the rehearsal. But I, I, I don't think anybody's ever accused me of that. I've, I'm, I've been accused of pretty well everything else in my life, but not of not bringing energy. When I introduced you at the beginning of our talk, I, I used three words in alphabetical order to describe you as an actor, a director, and a writer. <laughs> what order would you put those words in? Which do you consider yourself most, actor, director, or writer? I would say... At the moment, probably actor, writer, director. Director is definitely the least of those. I direct because I enjoy it, not because I need to direct. But I act and write because I need to act and write. And the, it's fairly evenly balanced. I do miss acting very much when I'm not doing it. But I, but I couldn't live without writing. I just could not live without writing. It's something I've done every day of my life since I was 15. And I, I, I just need to do it. It's taken me a long time to, to, to be able to do it halfway good but um, um, uh, and it, that process just goes on the point about writing of course unlike the other two things you just described are again that they are those other things that are essentially collaborative acting and directing are collaborative arts writing although one can gladly accept input from other people is essentially one's own responsibility this is mine and I I, 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 I can labor at it uh, um, happily unendingly. Let's talk about Simon Callow, the actor then. In my introduction, I listed a whole bunch of movies you've acted in and uh, some some stage work. You've done a tremendous amount of stage work in your native England and television work as well. Why have we seen so little of you as an actor in America? On stage, you mean? On stage, yeah. Uh, I mean, we've certainly seen your movies, but on stage. Yes, you know, it's just uh, one of those things. I mean, for example, um, uh, 
with Amadeus, uh, with the huge success that it had at the National Theatre, um, of course, there was no question that there'd be a Broadway production. Uh, but Paul Schofield doesn't like working on Broadway, so he said, I won't be doing it. So they had to decide whether to uh, take me over with another actor and then recast Mozart in London. So they were having to do two whole sets, or just leaving me in London and getting a whole new set for Broadway, which is what they did. Well, if I'd acted on Broadway then, I hoped that I would have had a different sort of a career in America. I mean, I've directed in America quite a lot. I've directed in Los Angeles and, uh, and as you said, on Broadway. But, um, yes, it's, it's regrettable to me. I, I'd, I'd love to. Nothing I'd, I'd rather do than act here in America. But it, it's quite an elaborate process, you know, getting an English actor. It doesn't seem like it, since apparently, you know, the New York stations be flooded with English actors. But, but actually, each one has to be quite carefully negotiated with, you know, green cards and visas, and I don't know what else. You have worked on Broadway twice as an actor and as a director. How different was the experience of working in that system than working simply in the commercial theater in in London? Uh, I suppose it's different. There are there are all sorts of differences which are apparently trivial, but which really do make a difference. Uh, like for example, every uh, theater in London comes fully equipped with lights and with uh, a tannoy system and a show relay system and all of that. Broadway theaters don't; they're just shells. And you have to bring the whole physical production in. And for me, British theatres always feel much warmer places. They feel much more lived in than Broadway theatres. Um, uh, then there's the whole question of, of, of the extreme unionization of, uh, of the American theatres. It's very expensive to do uh, simple things, and there's a lot of people who are employed simply because they're on the payroll. And, and you know, that's, you know, but that's... Actually, that's none of my business, but but it but it's but it's a difference, you know. Um, but in terms of directing um, uh, actors, uh, uh, again, there is a difference. There's a there's a, a very different attitude. I mean, American actors, I think, are much keener to please their director than British actors. British actors are quite uh, blasé and sceptical, you know, and cynical about things, and they are. They, it's a very much of a show me kind of uh, culture, and American actors are much more willing to put themselves in your hands. But on the other hand, it, it, with English actors, if you've negotiated a production with them, and that's what a production is, really, it's a negotiation. We all agree this is the way the play is working best. They'll kind of pretty well stick to it. But once American actors are on stage, they become very vulnerable to everybody else's opinion. And teachers come in, and mothers and second cousins from, you know, Wichita Falls, and then uh, and and uh, it's suddenly, oh, what, what, you know, what, what did we agree on? Um, that that that's has been a, a quite a common experience of mine in the American theatre. But but the, the joy of working with American actors is their is their commitment and their energy and their and their multi giftedness. You know, in a, in a way, English actors are still a little bit compartmentalised. There are those who do musicals. There are those who do you know, plays and so on. Well, that's one thing that struck me that you've you've had you've done a couple of major musicals in London as a director, yeah. and yet it wasn't out of you didn't come from a background you weren't in choruses no. you didn't play supporting roles and all of this work. How did you how did you approach Carmen Jones Pajama Game? Well, the way it came about was because, funny enough, this stems out of being an actor. When I wrote, when being an actor was first. The book. <laughs> the, 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 uh, the book, indeed. When the book first came out, uh, I got a letter from uh, a, a conductor who was the general music director of the th opera house in Luzern in Switzerland. 
And he said to me, I've just read your book, and you probably think I'm mad, but I think you'd be a very good opera director. And I wrote back and said, you're entirely insane, and uh, let's give it a whirl. So I went and did Così Fan Tutte there, because I have a great love of classical music and a great knowledge of it. I'm very familiar with it. I'm not a musician, but I'm uh, deeply in love with classical music. And then I was asked to do Die Fledermaus in Scotti- for Scottish opera. And Fledermaus uh, was my first big chorus opera, and that's always a, a big difference, you know. And it was rather successful. It was set in modern-day Glasgow of the time, and uh, everybody liked it, and it was revived and so on. And I think out of that... Uh, a, a producer said to me, well, I want to do Carmen Jones, and I think you'd do it very well. So, I mean, I, uh, yes, I had no sort of training and no background in it, but it didn't seem to me altogether different to anything that I'd known before. And I came straight to New York, and I got a conductor called Henry Lewis, once married to Marilyn Horn, now dead, sadly, but uh, a wonderful conductor who'd conducted the Met and so on, a black conductor. And uh, we together, we worked on a new arrangement of it, and we we decided on our musical approach to it. So I've always had a very good relationship with conductors, and I all, well, almost always had a very good relationship with conductors, and, and I, I, that's, that's what the production is always founded on, on that, that cooperation, because doing a, a musical is, is a sort of a dual monarchy. It's between the conductor and the director, just as doing a movie is a dual monarchy between the director of photography and the director. As it happens, there's a senior monarch, as it were, who is ultimately the director, because he takes responsibility for absolutely everything. But you have to work in close, close collaboration, I think. That's, that, and that's been the joy of it. And I've done many operas. I directed an opera here in Glimmerglass, uh, La Calisto by Cavalli. Great joy to do. And then there's the pajama game, a very middle American, all American <laughs> type of musical, and you did that in England. How did mm. that come about, and how did you approach that? Always wanted to do the pajama game. Really? And when the, the man who produced the, 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 the Carmen Jones is a man called Howard Panther, who's a very big figure in the English theatre, and uh, we were, you know, young together we uh, you know he was a company manager and I was an actor and we always talked about what things we'd do in the future long before I was a director or even thought of being a director and the pajama game was just the album that we played over and over and over again the London cast recording we adored the pajama game we just thought it was pure pleasure in the theatre and so after Carmen Jones had been a big success ran for years, you know, and went to Japan and all the rest of it. Uh, that was always on the in our minds that we would do it that way. Then, then we started to get smart, and we decided that um, we should do it. Not uh, there's been a long tradition of doing old Broadway musicals in sort of semi-stylized versions of the fifties or the sixties or wherever they're set, um, slightly heightened and stylized. And I thought we could break away from that and do something a little more ambitious. And so we decided that we'd, we'd, we'd do uh, a production uh, of the pajama game in, uh, with a, the work of an abstract painter. Instead of, instead of actually depicting the, the, the physical thing, we'd evoke it. And so we thought, well, who are the great abstract painters of the day? And uh, we thought, oh, well, it's Frank Stella. And so uh, we thought, oh, well, let's get Frank Stella. And so we came to New York and we went to visit Frank, and he just said yes. So he came and did the show for us in London, which was a little bit much, probably, for everybody. Um, and uh, I may have misjudged it somewhat. Uh, I still think 
what he did were some of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in a theatre. But maybe musicals need to be a little bit more straightforward than more, I was trying more, to make More it. literal. I think possibly. And possibly. Uh, it was when he kept on saying, why, why, when are we going to do the... Uh, I, I would say, when are, we, when are you going to design the sewing machines, Frank? And he'd say, sewing machines? What they, they can mime them. So, 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 so he, really. he, was, he was doing the scenic design. Yes. Yeah, the, so, and therefore the responsible look, for... The look of the show. Well, also so. responsible for all the physical elements mm-hmm. in it. Do you know? Uh-huh. You mentioned your friend Howard Panter, and in uh, one of the updates to being an actor, you talk about a unique relationship that you as an actor have Mm. with a producer Mm. to be able to go to him with projects and say, I'd sort of like to do this. That is very unusual. And and just how has that worked for you and between you? Well, on the whole, very, very well. I mean, we had a stupendous disaster about a year or so ago when I did a play of Simon Gray's in the West End produced by Howard, and and, uh, it was just loathed, loathed by the critics. I mean, intemperately loathed by the critics. Um... And uh, but I I don't I don't know what to say about that because it in fact was rather good and uh, it was you know that's just sometimes happens but it won't it, I mean we'll work together again we we always you know we'll you know we're very old friends and uh, we, we'll continue to, to work together. We're kind of coming full circle now in our chat. You've got uh, two books on the subject of Orson Welles third book in the works. Mm-hmm. As Howard said, you've taken him to his mid-30s. He's got a few good years left in him. Uh, he certainly has. Uh, yes, yes, there's going to be one more volume, just one more volume. That's it. You're, you're sure telling of that. Myself. <laughs> there, there are those who are skeptical, given how many years you've still got to cover. I know, I know. But there are a number of reasons why it's possible to do it in one volume. One is, Wells lead, led, uh, lived an incredibly dense life during the years that I cover in this book. After that, his life was much more scattered. And uh, secondly, I don't actually have uh, the kind of depth of material either. There isn't an archive which covers that period at all. I've done a lot of research. I've spoken to a lot of people. But by its nature, because Wells was involved in big radio companies, big uh, studios and so on, we have all of those archives as well. That doesn't really exist for him. And and finally, uh, after Drimes at Midnight, he didn't really complete any major projects. And so... I'm, what I'll hope to be doing is to, to do justice to the kind of nature of his life, which was essentially that of a rogue um, uh, uh, going round raising money in a begging bowl for the projects that he personally wanted to do. And he was shameless, uh, a, a kind of a con man in many ways, uh, in other ways doing things like the Paul Masson wine adverts just to make the money, just to do his movies. Uh, and if, if there's one thing I've known from the beginning about Wells and admired and endorsed absolutely about Wells, he never, ever, ever was in it for the money. He was in it for the art from beginning to end. And that's all he ever did in terms of directing or mostly in terms of acting. Well, on that note, let me just uh, reiterate that your new book, the second volume of Orson Welles' Hello, Americans, is currently out, just coming out, and being reissued now in paperback is The Road to Xanadu, your first one. And Simon Callow, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you. Great pleasure. Thank you, Simon. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding all of our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.